Uh, the Psalms are wonderful. We have a great time studying them. And Psalm 99 is rich. It's about the holiness of God. Holy is He. We see that refrain repre- uh, repeated three times throughout this psalm. And so um, that's where we are. Uh, psalm 99. I'm going to read it and pray, and then we are going to jump in. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted and holy is He. The King in His might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at His footstool. Here it is again. Holy is He. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord, and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. A great passage. Let's pray together. Father... We come to you tonight in Jesus' name. We pray, Lord, that you would draw near to us by your Spirit. Lord, to help us to understand what it means when we say that you are a holy God. Speak into our lives. Touch our hearts. Change us, Lord. May we leave, Lord, with a, with a greater capacity in heart and mind to, to, to grasp your greatness and majesty. And help us, Lord, to leave, resolve, to live for your glory. And we ask and pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Psalms are wonderful. Uh, They're actually 150 different hymns. Uh, They are songs that were written to be used in corporate worship in the nation of Israel. Even though these are 150 different Psalms, they do, however, have uh, some constant themes. And I think Dr. Easley gets it right when he says, God, the true and glorious King, is worthy of all praise and prayer, thanksgiving and confidence, whatever the occasion in personal or community life. And so Dr. Easley reminds us that the Psalms uh, teach us that uh, on mountaintops and in valleys, God is worthy of our continual trust and worthy of our continual praise. So I'm grateful for that reminder from the Psalms over and over and over again. And then John Piper picks up on the, the reality that these are songs. They're written to express, uh, to, to express ourselves to God. He writes, the Psalms are songs, they are poems, they are written to awaken and express and shape the emotional life of God's people. Poetry and singing exist because God made us with emotions, not just thoughts. Our emotions are massively important. And if you think that emotions aren't a big deal to God, just read the Psalms. They're obviously a big deal to God because we see the psalmist, I mean, dealing with everything here. Uh, Joy, happiness, anger, uh, depression, anxiety. uh, I mean, you name it. You you see the gamut of emotions in the Psalms. But always we see the, the psalmist coming to the conclusion that we need to bring our lives, bring our situations, bring our emotions to the feet of God, knowing that He has the answer. And Psalm 99 is about the Lord reigning. This is kind of the sequence of Psalms known as the, 
the kingly psalms, they all speak of him being a, a reigning king. Uh, we see that in the, the song, uh, the three or four preceding Psalm 99. In Psalm 99, he, he uh, really highlights the reality that God is holy. You notice there in verse 3, holy is he, last phrase. Verse 5, holy is he. Verse 9, for the Lord our God is holy. So most uh, scholars believe that this psalm has three parts, three refrains. At the end of each part, there is this emphasis on God's holiness. So I want to just show you from the text three, three realities that this psalm calls us to. Three realities that this psalm calls us to. Number one, this psalm calls us to recognize His holiness. Recognize His holiness. If there is an issue in the American church today, and there is, there are lots of issues, but I would say one of the top issues is the church has lost sight of the absolute holiness of God. That's not something we think about, not something that's emphasized, and it affects our worship, it affects our service, it affects our living, it affects our lifestyle, it affects everything. And so this psalm reminds us that we need to recognize God's holiness. We need to recognize that God is holy. Now holiness is an attribute of God and it is, it is intrinsic to God's nature. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, God is not striving for holiness. He is holiness. He's not trying to become more holy. He is perfectly holy. Does that make sense? And that's true of all God's character and attributes. God's not trying to get more powerful. He is all-powerful. He's not trying to get smarter. He is all-knowledge. He, he, all of his attributes are attributes that he holds inherently. They're just who he is, right? Uh, and, and, and so that's true of his holiness. And the holiness of God is used two major ways, or to speak of two different aspects of God throughout his word. The first way the holiness of God is used, or one of the ways the holiness of God is used, is to speak of His uniqueness. His uniqueness. In other words, the word holy is used in the sense of being set apart, that God is, is vastly different than you and I. Vastly different than anything or anyone else, because He is a God of absolute perfection and power and knowledge and sovereignty and wisdom and, and, and grace and, and all of these different attributes. And, and, and because that's who God is, He is totally unique. There's none like Him. Uh, he's totally separate from us. Uh, and we see this e emphasis over in Exodus chapter 15. So turn to Exodus 15. The con uh, context is interesting here. It's after God delivered Israel from Egyptian bondage and slavery. And as they're praising the Lord for His deliverance in Exodus 15, notice what the Bible says in verse 11. This is the song of Moses. Moses says in his song, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? answer is no one, right? Who is like you? Majestic in, what's the word? Holiness, set-apartness, otherness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. And so that verse speaks of God being totally unique, totally other than us. Uh, we can't uh, even compare 
to who God is because he is so unique, so other than us in his attributes and perfections. Turn to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 2. I want to show you another verse that speaks of this. Another song of praise. This is Hannah's song of praise after the Lord gave her Samuel. Hannah had been unable to have children, but God gave her Samuel. And look what she says in her song of praise. There is none, 1 Samuel 2, 2, there is none holy like the Lord. What she mean by that? What she says. For there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. So when she uses the word holy here, she's speaking of God's uniqueness. There's no one like you, none other but our God. You are totally unique. And so God is uh, transcendent. He's beyond us. He's other than us. That means that God is holy. But also this, this phrase, the holiness of God, speaks of his absolute moral purity. That's the way most of us think of the word holy. That When we say God is holy, we mean that God is a God of perfection, moral perfection. Uh, Albert Moeller calls God's holiness his total, unique, moral majesty. I like that phrase, his total, unique, moral majesty. And the Bible speaks of his, of his moral purity. Um, uh, Leviticus uh, chapter 11, Leviticus chapter 11. By the way, while you're finding your place there, I, I skipped a sentence. Under his uniqueness, God's holiness is an attribute of God, and it is the attribute of God. In other words, all of his attributes make him set apart. That's what make him, those attributes are what makes him holy. So why is God other or unique? Because he's all-powerful, he's all-knowing, he's uh, omnipresent, he's, you know, he is uh, sovereign. All these things are what makes, what set him apart. And, and so, Holiness is one of his attributes, but it's really the sum of all of his attributes. Does that make sense? That was just extra. I thought you needed to hear that. Um, but the holiness of God also speaks of his absolute moral purity. Look in Leviticus uh, chapter 11. show you how this word is used in reference to that idea. Leviticus 11, verse 44. The Lord speaking as he gives his law. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy. In other words, be set apart, be Upright, be righteous. Why? For I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, have moral purity. Why? I am holy. I have moral purity. And, and so uh, the word holy speaks of God's absolute perfection. I, lo- I love how it says it over in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, when it says that God is light. Now listen to this. In him, there is no darkness at all. No darkness. He is light. He is good. He is great. He is perfect. Listen to this. God never has a bad day. He never thinks a wrong thought. He never speaks flippantly or without thinking or says something that is wrong or... um, deceitful or devious or malicious. His speech is perfect. Anybody have a perfect record of speech this past week? Anybody? How are you doing on that one? Yeah. Uh, he, he never performs a wrong action. Over in Psalm 119, the Bible says, the Lord is good and he does good. Everything God does flows from his holiness, his absolute moral purity, his absolute uh, perfection. That's who God is. John Piper says it like this. 
When we say that God is holy, we mean that along with the immeasurableness of His greatness, that's His uniqueness, His character is unimpeachable. You cannot, he cannot be charged with any wrong. That's a great description of the holiness of God. He cannot be charged with any wrong. Now, of course, this has major implications for our lives when they go haywire, right? Because sometimes when we're in the throes of hardship or angst, we can find ourselves maybe putting some blame on God, right? This is your fault, God. God never makes a mistake. He never does anything wrong. He is holy. He is good. A God of absolute moral purity. So back in Psalm 99, the psalmist wants us to get this. That God is a God of total uniqueness and total moral perfection. Holy is He. Holy is He. Holy is the Lord our God. He wants us to recognize His holiness. And I, I fear that in the church today, we don't think of God in these terms enough. Uh, we, we sort of think of God as sort of the, the man upstairs that's there to kind of help us out with life. And, and we don't, we've lost our awe and wonder and reverence in light of the fact that God is holy, holy. And so we are called to recognize His holiness. Number two, this psalm calls us to recognize our need for a mediator. When you understand God's holy, you begin to see you have some needs in your life. And we see here our need for a mediator. Uh, here's something you need to understand. This is very, very important. An apprehension or an understanding of true holiness will cause you to tremble. So if you've never trembled thinking about God, you really don't understand holiness. Look what it says uh, in verse 1. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples, that's all the peoples of the earth, let the peoples what? Tremble. Tremble. The psalmist here is calling people to recognize God's holy unique moral majesty and to tremble in light of it. It's a very interesting phrase. And when you and I apprehend God's true holiness, it will cause us to tremble. Now let me show you a story where this actually happens. Turn to Isaiah 6, one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Isaiah chapter 6. The context here is King Uzziah, a king who had reigned for decades in Judah, died. Uh, you know that when a king died in ancient times, it was a time of great instability. Who's going to be the next king? Is there going to be a coup? Is, you know, is there going to be a war? What's going to happen? Who's going to be next on the throne? It was a time of great in instability. Isaiah is this prophet who's tasked with speaking into the lives of the people of Judah, the people of Israel, and God wants to give him some assurances in the light of the uncertainty of the, the transitioning to the next human king. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. 
Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. One called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Some scholars believe that, that the holiness of the Lord is mentioned three times as a matter of emphasis, just to remind us God is holy, holy, holy. Some believe this speaks to the triune God. Uh, God the Father is holy. God the Son is holy. God the Holy Spirit is holy. Maybe a little bit of both is in play there. But it says, uh, he sees these angels, these seraphim flying around the throne, singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. So there's this transition. King Uzziah is dead. What's going to happen next? People are wringing their hands in worry and concern. And God shows Isaiah in a vision of heaven. Here's the throne room of heaven. Hey, Isaiah, I'm still on the throne. It's going to be all right going to be good. I, I'm, I'm, I'm calling the shots. And look at how regal, look at how powerful and majestic I am. Train of the robe, uh, his robe fills the temple, and these, these seraphim are flying around. Holy, holy, holy. Can you imagine witnessing what Isaiah saw here? It's, it's an incredible scene as he has this fresh, uh, captivating vision of the holiness of God. So what does, uh, what does Isaiah do? Woo, the man upstairs, yeah. That's not what he does. Look, look what happens next. Look in verse 5. And I said, woe is me. Now here's what's interesting. God had used Isaiah in the chapters previous to Isaiah 6 to pronounce woe on other nations. He's a prophet of judgment. He says, woe to the Ethiopians, woe to this nation, woe to that nation. Judgment's coming, you've disobeyed, you've turned your back on God. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. When Isaiah gets a view of God's holiness, Isaiah the preacher says, Woe is me. In the presence of holiness, Isaiah understood how unclean that he was. And, and, and when you understand uh, that God is holy, you'll understand you're not holy. When the floodlights come on, you begin to see the dirt on you, right? And that's what's happening. He's in the presence of holiness. And he begins to say, I, woe is me. Look what he says. For I'm lost, I'm a man of unclean lips. Now dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes between the king and the Lord of hosts. So Isaiah sees the king uh, in his glory, holy, 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 and he says, I'm a mess, and I'm surrounded by people who are a mess. Woe is me. We are in trouble. He trembles, just like I, Psalm 99. We should tremble in view of the Lord's holiness. And then, uh, just to close out this story, he says, and we'll get to this some more in Psalm 99, but it says, One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, for your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for. So there's this symbolic hot coal that purifies, and, and that's a, a, a picture of the purification that we have in Jesus Christ, how his blood purifies us from our sin and forgives us of our sin. So he, there's this symbolic representation of the purity that God gives. And so Isaiah Woo, God is holy, I'm ruined, but God provides in His grace forgiveness. And he's excited, because look what happens next. I heard a voice, uh, the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? In other words, God says, I have an important message to deliver to my people. Who's going to go? And look what Isaiah says. Then I said, Here am I, send me. It's like Isaiah is saying, God, I've seen your holiness. I've seen my ruin 
and you have provided purity for me, you've forgiven me, and now you need someone to go and share a message, use me. Do you see the volunteer spirit there? As a quick aside, if any church is having a problem finding volunteers, maybe they've forgotten how good it is to be forgiven by a holy God. Maybe they've forgotten how wonderful it is that even though they are ruined by sin, God provides purity through the blood of His Son. And now that they've been forgiven by a gracious God and reconciled Him, they want to be used. God, use me. Here I am. What can I do, right? But notice here when... Isaiah, as you go back to Psalm 99, when Isaiah comes, or uh, when Isaiah comes face to face with a holy God, he trembles. He trembles. I love this quote from D. Martin Lloyd Jones, one of my favorite preachers from the 1900s. Preacher, and he was Welsh, but he preached in London, England, for most of his ministry. He says, if you really came into the presence of God and had some conception of His holiness, you would soon know yourself as a vile, terrible sinner. You would say with Paul that there is no good thing in you. The way to appreciate your own sinfulness is not to look at your actions nor your life, but to come into the presence of God. So, an apprehension of true holiness will cause you to tremble. Now, here's the deal. Next step. When you understand God is holy, you understand you cannot approach Him on your terms. Let me say it again. When you understand God is holy, you understand you cannot approach Him on your terms. Look what he says back in Psalm 99, verse 6. He mentions Moses and Aaron. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also among those who called upon His name. They called to the Lord, and He answered them. Here's what He's saying. Remember your history, Israel. You needed a mediator to come between you and God. You couldn't go directly to God. You couldn't go into the Holy of Holies and talk to God and deal with God. You needed a high priest, uh, someone acting in a priestly function, a leader to come between you and God, to mediate between you and God. And I believe that Moses and I believe that Samuel and I believe that Aaron are all Old Testament pictures of Jesus, the, the great high priest. Amen? And, and you understand, don't you, because God is holy, you can't just waltz into his presence and say, here I am, God, take me into heaven. You need a mediator. You need Jesus who comes between you and a holy God and sheds his blood so your sins can be washed away, and then you can come into God's presence because of the high priestly work of Jesus. That's what the whole book of Hebrews is about. If you want some more information on the priestly work of Christ, read Hebrews uh, it's all about Jesus coming between us and a holy God and forgiving us so we could be made right with God. But I, I love this reminder of Psalm 99. Hey, remember your mediators. God's holy. You needed someone to come between you and God so you could uh, relate to Him. When you understand God is holy, you understand you cannot approach Him on your terms. Let me tell you the game that people play when it comes to the Lord and their thoughts of what it's going to be like on Judgment Day. And, 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 and these, these games that people play really stem from a, a lack of understanding and appreciation of the holiness of God. All right? And this is common in the Bible Belt. All right? So let me, um, um, Eli, would you come here real quick? I need, I need, a, need a helper. All right. 
Let's just say here that I've got some red and white uh, pieces of paper. Let's just say that, uh, and let's just say that this table right here, now let's do, let's do this. Let's say that this uh, chair represents the judgment seat, all right? All right. Um, this, uh, the white strips of paper represent good deeds, good works, all right? The red strips of paper represent sins, all right? What's that Isaiah says, my sin was red like crimson, you wash it white as snow, right? So, so good deeds and sin. And so here's how a lot of people think it's going to be on Judgment Day. They say, well, uh, I'm going to stand before God one day, and, uh, you know, sure, I've, um, I've lied and I've cheated, and um, I've, you know, yeah, well, I, you know, I, 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 I didn't tell the truth to the IRS on my income tax, and, um, um, you know, I took some things, I cheated on my expense reports at work, and uh, I lost my temper and kicked the dog, and, um, you know, uh, I yelled at my wife, and so yeah, you know, just I mean, just just these different th- different things, and and then let's say, but you know, Eli has some good days. He's a good old guy, right? He's a good old guy. Comes from a good family, and um, Eli, um, he um, he mowed his neighbor's grass one day because his neighbor's out of town. That's important sometimes, right, Bob? Anyway, um, Bob mowed my grass while I was out of town. Uh, he, uh, you know what he. Uh, he went to church two times last month. Okay, he didn't have to go to church. He could go somewhere. He could be on. He could be on the lake fishing. He went to church two times. He uh, he um, gave some money to a charity he saw on TV. Uh, his heart was broken when he saw some people in need, and so he phoned in and gave him his credit card number and gave some charity. Um, he uh, he you know he hadn't killed his kids yet, so he's you know he's he's a he's a decent dad, and so. And so, and here, here, here's the, the game that a lot of people think they're going to play on Judgment Day. They think they're going to come before the judgment of God, and they're going to say, put those behind your back. Just do the red, the red, the red. They're going to say, God, let me in. Look at all my good works I've done. And the Lord, who is holy, the Bible says in Habakkuk, too pure to even look upon evil, would say, well, what's in that other hand right there? Well, don't worry about that, God. Look at all my good, look at my good deeds. Look what I've done. What about all that other stuff that you've done. What about that, that sin in your life? And a lot of people think they're just going to put it behind their back and say, here are my good deeds, let me into heaven. Listen to me. Unforgiven, people with unforgiven sin will not waltz into the presence of a holy God. It's just not going to happen, right? So that's one game a lot of people think. He's not looking at my, my bad things. Well, God knows everything. You can't hide your bad from Him. And no, Listen to me. No matter how many good things you do, no how many good works are in your life, you, you're a sinner, You've done some bad things, too. I mean, again, if we replayed a video of your life on this screen, who would not hang their head in shame? Right? Anybody in here want to take, you, take us up on that? Let's watch my entire life unfold before this group tonight. No, we will all hang our head in shame. Wow, we've all sinned. We've all got, we've all got things that need to be forgiven. If we stand before a holy God one day and they're not forgiven by Jesus, we'll go to hell and pay for those sins. Now, here's another, uh, another game we'd like to play. Bill, come on up for a second, Bill. Um, so let's do it like this. Let's say, uh, same old things. He's, Eli's done the same old things. He sinned, cheated, lied, uh, kicked his dog, right? And, uh, he's done that. But then you got, you got, uh, Bill over here. And I mean, you just name it. I mean, Bill, he's, his neighbors don't like him. Uh, his employee, he's a, he's, he's a mean boss. He's, uh, 
he, you know, he uh, deadbeat dad. He um, <laughs> he uh, disregards the speed limits every time. He never wears a seatbelt. He he, um, you know, he, he just. I mean, just. I mean, just. He's a bad guy, right? Just Bill is not a nice guy. People dread seeing him coming. Oh, here comes Bill. You know, we got to walk on eggshells because Bill has a temper issue and and a foul mouth and and we, you know, so 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 we got so here so now, now listen. This is how a lot of people think about Judgment Day. You listen. Eli comes up to the judgment seat and says, "I know I'm not perfect. But I'm better than that guy over there. I mean, I mean, yeah, I've 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 messed up some, but man, look at that guy." So, you know, I know I'm not perfect, but surely you'll let me into heaven because I'm a way better than that guy. And you'd be surprised how many people right here in this community are comparing themselves to other people instead of measuring their lives by God's holiness. And what's the Bible say? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So thanks, guys. Appreciate that. But th- that, that's how a lot of people try to, th- the games people try to play in the Bible Belt. Why? They don't understand holiness, right? So it doesn't matter if, if Eli has 300 sins in his hand and, and Bill has, you know, 300,000. If those 300 sins have not been forgiven by the blood of Jesus, Eli will go to hell. And he will pay the penalty for those sins forever and ever and ever and ever separated from a holy God. You don't, you're, not, you're not going to waltz into God's presence with unforgiven sin. You need a mediator, right? Israel needed a Moses and a Samuel and an Aaron. We need Jesus, the, the great high priest who, who went to the cross and shed his own blood so that our sins could be washed away and he could bring us into the presence of a holy God as forgiven and clean and robed in his righteousness. And so... When you understand God's holy, you recognize your need for a mediator. Let me me say it like this. If you really understand the holiness of God, you won't walk, you will run to Jesus. Because when you understand the holiness of God, you'll understand you are a sinner in need of a Savior. And people that think they're not that bad don't really understand God's perfection. They think they're basically okay, but we've fallen short of God's holy standard. We've fallen short of the glory of God. So this psalm calls us to recognize God's holiness. It calls us to recognize our need for a mediator. And number three, this psalm calls us to worship our holy God. To worship our holy God. Verse three, let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. Verse five, Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Uh, scholars believe the footstool there speaks of Mount Zion, the temple. Even Some even believe he's speaking of the Ark of the Covenant here, where his presence would rest over between the cherubim. But it says, worship at his footstool. It's a way of saying worship in his presence. Holy is he. Verse 9, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. So in view of God's holiness, we're called to worship. But look at this little distinction here. It's really fascinating in verse 9. It's also found in verse uh, 5. But he says in verse 9, exalt the Lord our God. So he's speaking to people that have a relationship with God, a covenant relationship with God. So he's speaking to people that get it. He's speaking to people that understand God's holy, understand that they're not, understand that they need a mediator, 
And based upon their faith, they have been reconciled to that holy God. They have a relationship with God. They have a covenant relationship with God. So these are people that, that to use our vernacular, they're saved. He's saying, now that you've experienced that journey, the journey Isaiah experienced in Isaiah 6, woe is me, God's holy, woe is me, but my sin have been purified, here am I, send me. Now that you've experienced being purified by a holy God, made right with a holy God. Now, exalt Him, worship Him in view of His holiness. And so, our holy God should be exalted in two ways. Number one, with our lips. Verse three, let them praise your great and awesome name. So, so praise is actually opening up your mouth and, and singing or saying good things about God things that are true about God, so that you can uh, adore God and uh, ascribe to God the worth that is due His name. That's what praise is, all right? And, and so he's saying, in view of God's holiness, praise uh, His great and awesome name. We should praise Him with our lips. We, sh- we should speak often of God's holiness in, in, our, in our individual prayer lives. We should uh, praise God for His holiness. We should talk often of God's holy, uh, perfect character. Uh, we should praise Him with our lips. Now, secondly, our holy God should be exalted by our lives. Look in verse 4. The king in his might loves justice. You've established equity. You've executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. So God is perfectly just, perfectly righteous, and He expects His people to reflect that. He reflects His people to live out righteousness and justice and equity and fairness and, and, and all of these attributes. And so our lives as Christians should reflect God's holy character. In other words, if, if you and I have been changed by a holy God and have a personal relationship with the holy God, then our lives should begin to reflect that in our growing desire for and growth into holiness. Say, are you sure about that? I mean, are we really supposed to strive for holiness, growing moral purity? Well, well uh, turn to First Peter 1. First Peter 1, New Testament book, First Peter 1, which is actually a quote from Leviticus. But look in First Peter 1 with me. Verse 1 Peter 1, verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So he's saying if if you're children of God, start acting like it, right? There ought to be a difference in your life. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy. Why? For I am holy. So one of the ways that we recognize God's holiness and exalt God's holiness is, begin, is, is to begin to reflect God's holiness in our day-to-day living. Now, you can't do that in your own strength. You're a ruined sinner just like I am. Only way we can begin to grow in holiness is for the Holy Spirit to come into our lives and begin to change us from the inside out and give us the power and strength and wisdom and wherewithal to begin to pursue holiness and live holy lives. But notice here, God's holy, so His people should be holy. We should pursue holiness. Holiness should be a big deal to us. When's the last time you heard someone in Christendom calling others to holiness? Right? 
holiness. That's what we're called to, be holy, for I am holy. I love this quote from John Frame, great theologian. He writes, remarkably, this is a great quote, remarkably, God's attribute of holiness, which creates such a distance between God and human beings, he's holy, we're not. There's a separation that only a high priest who sheds his blood can reconcile. God's attribute of holiness, which creates such a distance between God and human beings, also joins us to him in the most intimate fellowship. God makes us holy, which means that he associates us with his holiness. He brings us us into his holy ground, so we become his holy people, his saints. So once you're saved for not being holy, then he begins to make you holy. That's pretty cool, isn't it? When he saves you for for blowing it, and you and I, we've all blown it. Can I get an amen? amen? Then he helps you to begin not to blow it so much. And to grow and to begin to have victory in areas of your life and begin to to mature and to reflect the holiness of God in your life. A growing moral purity in your life. Now this can be notoriously hard to measure by growing in holiness. And and I'm not going to give you some kind of checklist to say I'm holier than I was, you know, recently. Um, But I can say it like this. If you're a Christ follower, there ought to be a a holiness in your life, a growth in holiness in your life that wasn't there five years ago. I, mean, I, I can tell you as your pastor, I, you know, I've been here uh, 16 years now. Uh, God's changed me over 16 years of time. I'm not, I'm not who I used to be. I'm not where I need to be. I still got a ways to go. Like Paul said, I'm striving forward, right? Uh, but God's done some work in my life over 16 years. I mean, just personally, I was a just personally, my own personal walk with Him. He's He's changed some things, dealt with some stuff, and and that's what He does, right? And so it's hard to measure am I growing in holiness? But if you step back and kind of look at the big picture, am I farther along now than I was, you know, five years ago or three years ago or? 10 years ago? Am I seeing this growth? Am I seeking holiness in light of God's holiness? So we worship our holy God with our lips. We open up our mouths and praise God for his holiness. Pray by his power and by his grace, begin to reflect that holiness in our lives. Now, let me just add this. This is so important. How many of you ever heard the word holy rollers? Is that a negative or positive when people say it about somebody? Negative, right? Making fun of somebody, they're, you know. And, and when somebody says that, their concept of holiness is God is trying to take away your fun. So if there's anything even remotely enjoyable, God says, don't do it. And if, it, it, that's what their, their, their view is. And if you buy into that, then you're a holy roller, right? That is a very unbiblical, incomplete view of holiness. Uh, holiness is not just does not consist of things you don't do. Like the old adage, I don't, uh, what is it? I don't uh, cuss, drink, or chew, or go with the girls who do something like that. You know the, you know, I, you know there, there's that. I, you know, I, my life's defined by what I don't do. Right? That's not holiness. Holiness is growing into the image of Jesus. Of course, there's some things you don't do that maybe you used to do because those things. Um, disrupt your fellowship and closeness with God and dishonor God's name and, and, and hurt your life. If God tells you not to do something, it's not because God's trying to take away your fun. He, he's not trying to take away your life. He's trying to give you life. He's not trying to lessen your joy. He's trying to maximize your joy. 
And so certainly there's things we don't do. But also as we grow in holiness, there's some things we do, right? Some positive things that, that we do. Uh, we, we, you know, we, we're in the Word. We, we pray. We tell people about Jesus. We love people. We, we uh, help those that have needs in their life. We show mercy to those that need mercy shown. We, we begin to exhibit uh, the, the character qualities of Christ. So holiness is not just, I don't do these things anymore. You can, you can stop doing some things and not be holy. Do you know that? The Pharisees thought they were holy because there were some things they didn't do. But they weren't walking in relationship with God through Christ. They weren't in, on mission with God. They weren't, they weren't uh, in step with God. And so we need to understand that holiness, yeah, there's some things we don't do because God knows what's best for us. But there are also some things we do. There, 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 there's a life we live that is intentional and purposeful and makes a difference in this world. And that's what it means to be holy. That's what it means to be set apart. That's what it means to reflect the image of God. And so when you think about holiness, don't think about, okay, God's trying to take away my fun. Holiness is, hey, God knows what's best for you. He knows where you will find freedom and peace and joy and wholeness, and it's in obeying Him and it's in serving Him, and it's in living to make much of Him. That's what holiness is, and that's where you will find uh, maximum joy. So, Psalm 99 calls us to recognize His holiness, calls us to recognize our need for a mediator, and it calls us to worship our holy God. Powerful psalm, right? Powerful psalm. And next week is Psalm 100, which is a really well-known psalm, so that's a good one uh, as we get to the century mark. Any questions tonight on Psalm 99? Any questions on holiness before we, uh, before we close tonight? Any, anybody have any questions off the top of their head? Any questions? Any questions? You know, I was talking about, uh, actually, I had this conversation today talking about holiness. I just thought of this example. Um, you know, God's commandments and God's expectations for your life. Um, when I was uh, a teenager, um, I never was uh, really challenged in the area of moral purity. And, um, but I was one time, and it was this, uh, it was this, um, uh, gathering at a church, and it was called True Love Waits. Anybody ever done True Love Waits? Um, and, and True Love Waits is all about abstinence, uh, don't have sex before you're, you're married. And, and here's what I heard. Now, it, it may have been presented different than this, and it might have just been immature Wade, but here's what I heard. I heard, don't have sex, don't have sex, don't have sex, don't have sex, don't have sex before you're married, don't have sex before you, don't do it, 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 don't do it. And so my idea of holiness was, man, don't do it. Right? Just don't do that. That's, just stay away. Okay? If I want to be holy, just, just stay away. Um, what I believe the church, particularly in this culture, that there's so much craziness going on in the area of sexuality, what the church needs to portray is this. Sex is God's design. He's the one who came up with it. And he told us how to find freedom and joy in it in the boundaries of marriage. Right? So it's not, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. No, it's, it's no, God designed this for marriage, and it's good. See the difference there? So holiness is not just, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. Don't do it. Holiness is uh, enjoying God's design in the boundaries of marriage, right? It's like a fireplace. If the fire's in the fireplace, it gives off light and warmth. If it gets out of the fireplace, it burns the house down, right? 
And as long as we take God's design and intention in the boundaries, the loving boundaries of marriage, there's joy there. It's not just not doing something. It's, it's enjoying what God has uh, designed. See, see the difference there? And that's holiness. That's holiness in uh, marriage. And guess what? All the statistics bear out. God's not trying to take away anybody's fun. Uh, the, the folks that have the most joy in their relationships are monogamous married couples. Go figure. God knows what he's talking about, huh? 